Good morning, church. Great to be with you as our kids, our 7 to 10-year-olds, head off to uh, their Kids Treasuring Christ discipling classes. Uh, we are just thankful for all of our KTC workers, as today is our first uh, Sunday back for uh, after taking a summer break, and so all the many laborers that uh, are pouring in to our kids that they might treasure Jesus for the rest of their lives. Just deeply thankful for them. And so even though they're not here, let's just thank Jesus for them, okay? And when you go and pick up your kids or you see them out there, you please let them know how thankful you are to God for them. We are in a series that we have begun over a year ago in the book of Romans. And so we find ourselves today, Romans chapter 12. So if you got a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. If you got a phone, Download an app. We use the ESV version of the Bible. And so go on there. Romans chapter 12 is where we are today. Romans chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 3 through 10. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 10. And as Pastor Ranjur and I share uh, the, the bulk of the preaching together, um, I'm going to follow in his suit. When you're there, say I'm there. That's right. Amen. Amen. As you are turning there, and I would like to begin by reading here from Romans chapter 12. Look at verse 3 with me. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Word of God says this. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we are many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we Though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads, lead with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, do it with cheerfulness, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Let me pray. Father, we cannot produce this in our own lives. So we take this time to say, God, oh God, form in us what we cannot in ourselves. Form in us a gospel culture. Give us a heart, 
a way of relating to each other, a way of relating to the world with a radical, accepting, welcoming, forgiving, honoring, honest, humble, happy, I am for you kind of love flows through our spiritual pores and creates a people. Not just individuals, but a people together who display your love to the world. Father, you are better. Jesus, you are better. Holy Spirit, you are better. You are better than the money we make and the sex we seek and the fame we crave and the hearing we hope to gain. You are better. Help our hearts say that you are enough and that without you, we'll fight for the wrong things. We'll give our lives for that which destroys. We'll grow more and more weary and exhausted. Father, we so desperately need you. Pour out your grace. Make us, Treasuring Christ Church, a gospel culture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Culture. What's it mean? I don't know if you know this, but we are all multicultural. Culture is a shared set of values. It's a shared mission common experiences that generally make up a group of people. Culture. Corporations have their culture. If you're in a company that's more than just a couple of employees, you know that there's a culture. And that culture, they're trying to help you become a part of this way of thinking, this way of doing business, this way of relating to each other. I worked at Home Depot for several years of my life. And while I was there, there was two main emphases in Home Depot culture, which was customer is first and be better than Lowe's. And I'm just not sure they accomplished either one of those because as an employee, it was like, you know, you're not making enough money. So um, here's how this rolls. Culture is formed by those leaders, by the people adhering to the same set of values, the same set of interests. We form culture. Music has culture. If I say Hip-hop culture or country music culture, you have pictures, images, ideas that are completely different from each other because you know what you sing produces a set of values, shapes the mind and the heart, creates a culture. Likes and dislikes, what you wear, how you talk, what you think about, what you prize, what you elevate, culture. Ethnicity. Region of the world creates culture. This is where stereotypes come into play, right? Like all black people, all white people, all Hispanic people, they're all the same. They all look this way, and, and that's just how it works. And then, of course, when you hear that as one from a certain culture, you're like, but wait, that's too narrow for me. Don't, don't put me like that. But then the beautiful parts, you're like, yeah, that's wonderful. But we're all talking a language of culture. People in the south are act this way. People in the north act this way. These are general statements. Culture. Black, white, Hispanic, white, Asian. It can be so limiting, but it's also beautiful. It's beautiful. We are not colorblind, nor is our God. And as a family... The beautiful thing about being a multicultural 
church or an aim that we would be multicultural is that it should be a safe place to talk about our different cultures, what we love, what we eat, how we've grown up. And yet our world makes it divisive when our God is, wants it to be beautiful. Around the world, race has its effect in who's in the majority and who's in the minority, who has authority, who has positions of power. That can create culture. Wealth can create culture. Poverty creates culture. Political views create culture. Where we were born, how we grew up, context in which we live, it shapes our likes, our dislikes, what we say is normal. Do you get the point yet? Sports can create culture. If, you're, if you like basketball, that's a whole culture. If you like football, it's a whole culture. Soccer, whatever, they have culture. Food, music. Do you like that one? You can tell soccer was not my primary cultural love. <laughs> Food, music, language, and yes, even our beliefs. What we worship creates culture. Multiculturalism is a gift. It's a gift because it helps you perceive what is beautiful about your culture, but it also helps you see other ways of living, other ways of doing things. If you are monocultural, you will think that's the only way to do life. You'll begin to moralize your culture. That is right and wrong. When sometimes it's just different. Multiculturalism actually helps you forge a way to ask a question that we are asking today. How does something that is beautifully, mosaically different come together in a unity that proclaims the glory of God? How do we actually, as a people with all different cultural streams that make us who we are and all of our complexities, how do we become a gospel culture? Jesus has come and invaded his people to create a culture, to create a people that are characterized by certain common elements that supersede a sense of all of these other secondary cultures. It doesn't make secondary cultures unimportant. Actually, they should be celebrated and loved. There's just a superculture. There's a dominant culture. There's a super identity that rises above them all that can unify us despite all of the different streams of multiculturalism that make us who we are. It's a gospel culture. It's what Jesus came to die for. It's what he laid his life down on the cross for sinners of all peoples. All socioeconomic stances, all ethnicities, all everything. This blood-bought people are meant to be characterized by a gospel culture. This happens because our God did not leave us alone in our sin. He came to us. He drew near. He didn't stay away. 
even though we were nothing like his culture. Completely perfect, glorious, beyond imagination. And we fell short of his glory. We chose our own way, chose to try to forge our own culture, and it wrecked the world, still is to this day. But rather than getting rid of us, God came near to us that we might together, we might together as a people, realizing how powerless we are to change ourselves, that we no longer have to be powerless again. We no longer have to feel hopeless again because if we trust in Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of sins, He comes and lives inside of us. He makes us new. He transforms us. And not just as individuals, He makes us a people, a church. And that church is meant to have a culture, a gospel culture, a Romans 12 type of culture. Romans 12 does not start the book. Romans 1 to 11 are the foundations that help you understand how you become a part of God's gospel culture. There's a lot of to-dos, so to speak, in Romans 12. And if you start there, you will be overwhelmed. You'll be exhausted. You'll realize how powerless you are to actually produce this. And you'll give up, you'll quit, and you'll go and live for yourself. But there's a good news. There's a good news where Jesus has come to us and he says, you are justified, declared not guilty by faith alone. There's good news that all those who trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of them, so you are never powerless. You will never again be powerless to do what he has asked you to do. The very thing he commands of you, he will supply. And so in order... To celebrate Romans 12, we have to celebrate the true promises of Romans 8. That God is working all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. If God is for you, then who can be against you? And nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not the worst thing you could ever imagine. God is always there and he loves you. And that's the on-ramp into Romans 12. God is making us what he commands of us. And so to be a part of a gospel culture, it's not just something that happens to us, but it's something that we must work to create. I'll say it again. A gospel culture is not just something that happens to us, although it is. It's something that we have to work to create. A maxim that we use here at the church is that culture is either created for you or by you. And Paul is saying, we must be a people who help create, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a gospel culture. That's why today is so pivotal. Today is crucial. It is a blueprint for how we can be a gospel people have a gospel culture. It's a map of what God wants for you and I individually and what he is calling us to be as a church. I cannot overstate the importance of where we are headed today. It's the gateway to joy and peace. It's what love means. Our witness to one another and to an outside lost world is at stake in us grasping this moment here. 
So God wants us to be a people characterized by gospel culture. I was at a wedding last night. I didn't do it. I got to observe it, and it was wonderful. Pastor Travis did a phenomenal job of, uh, do, of officiating this wedding, and it was just such an encouragement to my soul. It was uh, two family members here at Treasure in Christ Church, Sloan and Kristen. Used to be Kristen Biddle, now Sloan and Kristen Schuler. And so we celebrate that they got married yesterday. And you know, that's right, amen. And you know what happens at a rehearsal right before the, we the wedding day? You have a rehearsal dinner, right? And at the rehearsal, there's a time, a time when people can share what they think about you <laughs> or how they have memories of you. And some of those are flattering and some of those are not. I talked to Pastor Travis. He said one of the most encouraging things to him was to listen to these people talk about Sloan and Kristen in such a way that said, the way that they are here among us at Treasuring Christ Church is the way that they've been in private with their friends. This is what a gospel culture begins to, to boil up. It's the way others see us being the people of God. Not just on the Sunday mornings, but even in our messy times, even in the times when we're broken, we're walking through suffering, God is calling us to find joy in being his people in a gospel culture. So let's look at it together, friends. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, the first thing is a gospel culture is shaped by grace. This is the blueprint. This is the map. What is a gospel culture? What should I be pursuing individually? What should I be fighting to cultivate? What should we be praying towards as the people of God of Treasuring Christ Church? A gospel culture is shaped by grace. Look at the first words. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, and then he gives a list. This grace given to Paul was a a grace to teach and to lead the church. But it's also a grace given to the church, as we see in verse 6. If you look at verse 6, it says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. That it's not only of Paul the leader, but it's of the church. The church is characterized by grace. If Paul were used to describe his life in one word, I do believe it would be called grace. Because he sees how desperate he is for God to intervene. And if God doesn't intervene, he knows he cannot keep going. That intervention into the helpless life is grace. Undeserved favor. Paul knows his life is shaped by grace. And because it is, he talks about it a lot. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Were it not for the grace of God, he just constantly talks about grace. Grace is God's help. It's his help for the helpless. Wherever grace is involved, it's a declaration that God is the giver 
and I am the receiver. And the people of God say amen to that. That God is the giver and I am the receiver. That's who we are. And as Paul talks about our salvation, listen to how he talks. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace uproots Boasting. It's not part of grace's vocabulary. When you see grace, you do not boast in yourself. You only can boast in him. It's like a person who gets an inheritance. A person who was dirt poor. And yet find out they have some distant relative where they inherit millions And then they go around bragging about their millions, talking about how great they are, that they now have wealth. We would say that's insane. What's the right response to someone who didn't deserve the inheritance and got it? It's to talk a lot about the giver. That's what a gracious heart does. It can't stop talking about the goodness of our generous God who gave what we didn't deserve and did not earn. For by grace you have been saved. As Pastor John Piper says, with grace the giver gets the glory. And we must keep our hands off of his glory. The giver gets the glory. God is the giver and the people of God love it. They love it. Because that's how the church exists. Grace is meant to create a humble people, a people who don't need to talk about their greatness because that's not where their importance or significance lies. Grace allows you to talk about yourself as a receiver and talk a lot about the amazing, lavish, loving God as giver. You're not afraid to talk about weaknesses or failures because you know all you have is grace. Even the work you did to get the paycheck this week was grace. How did you have the mental ability to do what you did? How did you have the energy to do what you did? How did you have the time or the opportunity to do what you did? It is a lie to say that's me. It's grace. Even from unbelievers, it's common grace. Because he can shut you down in a moment. It's grace. He loves us. And so the gospel creates a people changed by grace, live by grace, talk about grace, plead for grace. God, help me. That's gospel culture. And this is the gateway to humility, which is where Paul goes next. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, look at verse 3, not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think. Summary, a gospel culture is humble. A gospel culture is humble. Why? 
Why does he address, don't think of yourself more highly than he thinks? Because here in a second, when we get down a little bit later and look at a few other verses, he's going to begin speaking of the gifts that the people of God have been given. And so here's the setting. The picture in the church is that some have gifts that others don't have. And there's a temptation for now those in the church who have certain gifts to look down on others who don't have those gifts and just to think really highly of their greatness because they have gifts that God, even God has used their gifts to bless other people, but the temptation is they think highly of who? Themselves. We know this temptation. Those of you who are really good at details, you might be tempted to talk poorly of, to look down upon those who maybe love large but are not detail-oriented people. Those who think big picture are tempted to think poorly of those who can't get their head above the clouds and see the 30,000-foot view because we're different. We think somehow that that was something that we gave ourselves. Those who are able to teach can get frustrated with those who struggle to understand. And we can go through a ton of different lists and say, we're tempted, aren't we? <laughs> I didn't get an amen on that. It's true. That's what amen means. <laughs> amen. amen. <laughs> it's kind of a, I get it. But this is a gospel culture. A gospel culture doesn't have to boast of itself. Insecurity boasts of itself. The secure talk about grace. The insecure need to prop themselves up because they're not trusting God to be their significance and their value. A way of humility is a way of freedom from comparison and having to be better than other people. It's just a completely different way to view the world and to view others. It's a way that's set free to not have to find your status in what you do, but in whose you are. A gospel culture is humble. Tim Keller says this in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. This might be another ouch, but we'll give some gospel salve to the wound here in a second, okay? Tim Keller says this, the thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. I experienced this yesterday. Pride in my own heart. I'm at a wedding. 
after the wedding? Dance Party Central, which I love. You know, I'm fine to dance, like, in my closet, you know, to music, but I don't have a lot of personal confidence when it comes to, you know, public dancing. I actually have decent rhythm, but I just can't set myself free, you know, it's just, and you know what it is? I'm really conscious about what other people think. I battled with that even yesterday. I loved watching people dance. I struggled to remove myself from the equation and to really be about others. I need some gospel humility. I need some grace. What about you? And is there any area where you too are tempted to make yourself the center of the conversation? To only enter this room thinking about how does it affect you? gospel culture. A gospel culture is humble. Dear friends, I can tell you from experience, it feels impossible sometimes. But let me give you just a little bit of gospel comfort for that wound. Our God has promised to give you everything he commands of you. You're not facing that moment of self-crisis alone ever. If you are his, you can know he is at work in your heart. You're not alone. He loves you. He proved it at Calvary, and he's not going to let you go. So, when you walk in pride, you can say, oh God, I just made that about me. And what did you just do? You just took the mess and you didn't run away from his presence. You ran into his presence. That's why Acts chapter 3 says repentance is the gateway to refreshment. Because repentance is the gateway into his presence. Gospel culture is shaped by grace and it's humble. And a gospel culture is honest. It's honest. And where Paul goes next is a gospel culture is honest with yourself. About your weaknesses, about your failures. You're honest. Where do I get that? Look at the text. He says, I say to everyone, verse 3 still, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure that God has assigned. Gospel culture is honest. It's filled with sober judgment. Sober judgment means two things. When you think of sober, you think of what? Not drunk, right? Okay, take the image. This is intentional. Sober judgment. One is don't think about yourself with a distorted view of yourself. What does drunkenness do? It distorts reality. It distorts what's going on. You don't have self-control. You're not thinking clearly. So he says we should have the opposite when we think in this situation. We should have clear thinking. And then about who? The text says don't think of yourself more highly of you ought than you ought. But think of yourself with sober judgment. With honesty. 
Sometimes in community, we really value being honest with other people. We're meant to be a people of truth, right? Amen? We're a people of truth. We believe the Bible is true. We're a people of truth. We walk in truth. But we're supposed to give truth to others in what? Love. Thank you. I hear that in the front row and not the back row. Truth in love. So, honesty, sometimes it feels like that means I need to tell them all that I think about them. How they've hurt me or what I don't like about what they've done, etc. Sometimes that's the honesty that we feel like is going to set us free. But for Paul, honesty here begins with honesty about yourself. And honestly, we don't always need to say what's on our mind. That's not the gateway into freedom. We must speak truth in love. We must say true things. That's honest. That's wonderful. That's what the gospel requires of us. But Paul starts with first things first. Think honestly about yourself. We must have self-honesty because self-honesty keeps us humble. <laughs> Do you get the connection? Like, don't think higher than yourself. Like, re remember grace. All of a sudden, all these things just came together in one chord. You didn't make yourself good at X, Y, or Z. Apart from grace, you would be committing all of the things that are so frustrating to you and your spouse or your coworker or your neighbor or whoever that you're frustrated with. You must think of yourself not higher than other people, but with sober judgment. So before we speak to others honestly about their problems, Paul says we need to be drained of our elevated view of ourselves and have an honest view of ourselves, which comes in light of God's mercy. But sober judgment doesn't just mean don't have a distorted view of yourself, but what happens with alcoholism is there's a, a craving, right? You crave that drink. You crave what you do not need for peace and satisfaction. Sober judgment is attached to that last phrase, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What's the craving that can distort our sober thinking? It is, I want and need somebody else's life. Think of yourself with honesty. Not just honesty about your need for Jesus, but honesty about your limits and what God has created in you. And that is actually meant to be an honest celebration. You don't have to be your neighbor. He's made you you. And I get it. The Bible gets it. We long for the green grass on the other side. We long for that person's life or wife, or property, or kids, or job, or bank account, or possession. We long for other people's things many times. But this sober judgment is a sober judgment that is not craving somebody else's life, but each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That means God has given you what you need. Go live a full and free and wonderful life in the gifts he's given you. You don't have to be somebody else. 
He sets you free from jealousy. So many of us are exhausted because we're trying to live somebody else's life rather than resting in being who God has made us to be. It does not mean you don't try to improve yourself. Don't hear that. But don't try to be somebody else. God has given you you. Don't try to live somebody else's life. Be who he made you to be. Even your differences. Your differences from other people are actually, could you think about them differently, that your differences are part of a larger puzzle, that we don't have to be everything to everyone else. We don't have to have all the gifts because Paul is actually saying that's best. It's actually best that you're not omnicompetent and omni-knowledgeable and that you don't have everything. That's best. That's best for you and it's best for the church. Because our lives are necessarily connected to each other. That's not just a sermonic point. That's the Bible. Because that's where Paul goes next. A gospel culture is shaped by grace. It is humble. It is honest with sober judgment. And it is a culture that is interconnected. Look at verse 4. For as in one body we have many members. One body, many members. And the members do not all have the same function. That's our differences. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. My hand is not its own separate body. It is connected to the one body. My pinky toe is not its own separate body. It is connected to the whole body. It is one body. And I need my heart. I need my pinky toe. I need my hand. I need my eyes. I need. We work together, although different, one body interconnected. That's what the text means. Individually, members of one another. So what that means, Treasure in Christ Church, when God calls us family, it means that we need each other in this local church. Need. Not icing on the cake. Need. Foundational. I need you to be my eyes. You need me to be your elbow. Yeah, elbows are important, you know. We need each other. We are interconnected people. Here's how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Ah, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That would, make it, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God is arranged. He's brought you to this church. 
He's arranged you to be a part of this local body. Arrange the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. You don't have to be somebody else. You're meant to be you. A necessary part of this body. It goes on to say, if all were a single member, where would the body be? What good does it do for a hand to kind of walk around with nothing else attached? It's kind of bizarre. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. Verse 24, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. Good night, could we spend time there? The more we see our interconnectivity as family and one body forming together a gospel culture display to one another and the world, the less division exists. And so he goes on to say, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. What helps us stay humble, friends, is that we finally acknowledge we're on the same team. But even deeper, we're a part of the same body. We're a part of the same body. I don't care if you're located in North Raleigh or Garner or if you're located in downtown Raleigh or Nightdale, if you're in southeast Raleigh or if you're somewhere else in Durham or Cary or what, your physical location does not make you a less part of the body. This is a spiritual reality. God has brought us together to be the people of God, interconnected for the glory of his name. And so the text says, Romans chapter 12, verse 4, the members don't have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. But then verse 6 says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's use them. So a gospel culture is shaped by grace, it's humble, it's honest, it's interconnected, but it's also diverse. It's different. We do ourselves a disservice by only being with people that are like us. It's like a bunch of eyeballs trying to get together and celebrate that they're a body. No. God has designed. The end tells us so. When people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be gathered around the throne giving praise with one voice. And it's not called unison. It's called harmony. In case you don't know choir, harmony is something that multiple voices that are different, some are high, some are low, some are in between, they sing different parts together with one song to create a beautiful melody, and that's the image Romans 15 calls the church. We are too busy trying to force people to be like us apart from gospel centrality, and we are dividing and ripping one another apart forgetting the spiritual background 
the spiritual interconnectedness that we are one body, although different, one. And it's to be celebrated. But we're not just going to celebrate this high view that we're all unified in Christ. We're going to celebrate our differences. We're going to celebrate our different ethnicities and our different cultural backgrounds. We're going to celebrate our different likes and dislikes. We're going to celebrate our different upbringings. And you might be like, you don't understand. My upbringing was hard. I don't want to repeat that. But that's also what the church is. The church enters into difference and we listen to one another's different stories, different journeys. And here it's speaking about different gifts. Have you ever tried to glue two pieces of paper together? The answer is yes. This is just to try to get you to participate. Okay. Glue. Glue has some common aspects with paper and some different aspects of paper. So I looked it up online. Praise Jesus for Google. The American Chemical Society tells me this about glue and paper. The molecules in glue, oh yeah, we just got nerdy. The molecules in glue are long and flexible and made of atoms with positive and negative charges in them. Okay, you following so far? Good. The molecules in paper also have positive and negative charges, so now glue and paper are kind of the same, but... Since opposites attract, the glue is great for sticking paper together because its positive and negative charges are different than the paper's positive and negative charges, and they stick together. Difference connecting us. It's Paul's image. Celebrate that you're different because it actually makes us stronger. It makes us stronger. How? Not stronger because we all begin to have the same likes, but stronger because together in our diversity, we sing the same song, only God can make us one. Why has God given you gifts? He's given you gifts for love. Our differences are not meant to pull us apart, but actually complement and to bind us together to show off God's power and love. The text goes on and it says, look at verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's use them. And then he gives this long list of gifts, and I'm not going to be able to go through the gifts. I want to high level address this. He says, if prophecy which I believe is little p prophecy. It's a word of exhortation that accords with Scripture prompted by the Spirit to encourage someone else. Spirit-prompted, revelation-rooted, fallible speech. And has to be tested. I know that just blew right by most of you. You're like, what in the world is that boy talking about? I get it. We can have a long talk about it. Prophecy. New Testament gift. In proportion to faith. As you trust God to give you encouraging words for others, you speak those words. It's faith. If service, that is the ability to serve others. There's just an inclination of your heart to love, and it's broad, and it's wide, and you really want to lay your life down for others. Yes, it's calling for all people, but there's a unique, special anointing on some where they just do it really well. If service, 
use your service. If teaching, those who can make complicated things plain, then use your teaching. Verse 8, the one who exhorts. Exhortation is both sometimes an admonishment, but it's also a word of encouragement. Some of you are really gifted at that. The one who contributes. If you're going to be a giver, God has given some the ability just to have a generous heart. It's not speaking to you have a lot of money or you don't. It's speaking to a heart's disposition to just give. Give money, give time, give resources. You're just generous. The one who leads, lead with zeal. Don't lead with laziness, lead with passion. The one who does acts of mercy, it's hard to lay your life down in the trenches with those who are really hurting and cannot provide for themselves. So the admonition is fight for cheerfulness. But here's what I want to highlight. These are different gifts. Why has God given different gifts to the church? You do not have all of these. Why has God given different gifts to the church? Have you ever thought, and hear this, gifts given to us are not meant to be platforms to show our value, but truly what the word implies They are gifts given by the Holy Spirit so that we might love other people. You're meant to look at this list and say, Good night. God has given me something to love my neighbor. Amen. Hallelujah. But how many times can we look at the gifts given to us and say, Hey, they don't have that. I'm better than them. Or, hey, that's what makes me valuable is I've got this gift. That's not the grid right here for Paul. The Paul is, for Paul, it's you've got different gifts, and I'm giving those to you so that you will love deeply. Every one of these are outward facing. Every one of them. To prophesy, to serve, to teach, to exhort, to lead, to be generous, to do acts of mercy, all require you to do that to somebody else. That's why the next phrase is love must be genuine gospel culture is shaped by grace it's humble it's honest it's interconnected it's diverse but it is loving it's loving pastor ron Jure will be able to take all of this and kind of bring it together but i just i cannot speak of gospel culture without at least mentioning that a gospel culture is loving It hates what is evil, and it holds fast to what is good, and it looks at the church body, and it has affection. It chooses to think well of another, and it says, I love you, even when you don't always feel it. He gives gifts to the church that you might think, my life is going to be used to love that person that's sitting three rows in front of me. My life is going to be used to love that person that I'm going to talk to in the foyer. My life is going to be used to serve those kids. My life is going to be used because my life has been given gifts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just the great Christians, anyone who's trusted in Jesus Christ, you have a gift to love. So let love be genuine. Fight for it. 
And the final thing he says here is, outdo one another in showing honor. Love, gospel culture is not only loving, but it is honoring. I began with talking about Sloan and Kristen's wedding, and I end here. I mentioned their wedding and their rehearsal dinner time. It's that time of honoring one another and speaking of all the grace that you see in that couple's life. What if we didn't just save that for weddings? What if every Sunday morning was a rehearsal for the end? What if our interaction before and after the service was a rehearsal dinner of sorts? To talk about where we see the grace of God in other people's lives. A culture of honor. A culture not afraid to say, I saw you instructing your kid. And that encouraged me. And I just thank you for doing that. I saw you put your arm around your wife or your husband. And that encouraged me to be more affectionate. I saw you serving those kids in KTC. And I just want to thank you for pouring into my children and showing them Jesus. I thank you. I saw you serving so Difficultly through all of the technological difficulties. And I thank you for leading us to the throne of grace. We speak not of that person's greatness. But when we're a culture shaped by grace, honor is speaking of God's greatness in the person. And we can do that all day long because it is talking about Christ. What if our church were characterized by these things. That we were just known as a happy people. A people who love the differences that dwell in this room and in our church and in our city. A people who feel that sense of family and interconnectedness, who are humble and honest, shaped by the gospel, loving and honoring. It begins with each of us. And it begins even before that with trusting that our God supplies everything you need for us as a people to be a healthy gospel culture. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I plead for you to make us a gospel culture. Please protect this from being simply words. Protect it from being a list of to-dos, but a vision for which we can live our lives. Help it to be a blueprint or a map. Help it to be the end of the movie that we know that we're striving for so that we will live our lives to be this kind of people, to be connected to one another, to celebrate our differences, but to also celebrate our unity in Christ, to be humble that we would be known by listening, honest with ourselves, honest with our neighbor for their good. Help us to be loving, I pray, O Father. Protect your people from discouragement right now. I feel that sense in my spirit. Father, protect your people from discouragement and blow wind in their sails. That you're on the scene. You love them. You've given them gifts because you are with them. 
They are never alone. May these promises just wash over them. Nothing will separate them from your love. If you are for them, who can be against them? You are working even their greatest suffering to make them more like Jesus and to make them happier in Christ. Father, please help us to see Jesus, to rest in him, and to be set free. I want to give you just a few minutes or a few seconds here to just take your heart to the Lord. There's one thing that he's been working in your heart. And I ask that in this moment, you would just take all that you are. Maybe be honest and set free for the first time. That God wants all of you and he loves you. Let's celebrate his love together. Let's take a moment of reflection and then we'll sing this closing song.